Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The outbreak of COVID-19 continues to intensify. The numbers of confirmed cases has climbed to over 200,000 globally, and perhaps many more that have not been recorded. Governments are racing to try to slow the spread of the disease. In America, some communities have been asked to shelter in place, a sort of informal lockdown. Britain has urged the public to self-isolate and work from home if possible. The European Union plans to ban all travelers from outside the bloc for 30 days. In China, however, the number of cases has declined substantially, and some workers are returning to their jobs. The world is trying to reduce the transmission rate of infections. Although 8,000 people have died from the illness, we are just at the outset of the pandemic. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And on today's show, we answer your questions about COVID-19. What is the modeling behind herd immunity? How much progress has been made in a search for a vaccine? And how do testing kits actually work? There is a lot of misinformation about the new coronavirus. So on Babbage, we aim to bring some clarity. We asked you for your questions on social media and received many excellent ones. So thank you very much. To help answer them are my colleagues from The Economist. Hello, I'm Slaveya Chankova. I'm the healthcare correspondent. Hi, I'm Natasha Loda. I'm the health policy editor at The Economist. And I'm Alok Cha. I'm the science and technology correspondent for The Economist. So let's get started with this. The response of countries around the world is to, quote-unquote, flatten the curve. What does that mean, and can it be effective? So what this curve is, is the number of new infections every day. And what happens with this virus, because it's very contagious, the curve just rises very steeply, so you have this really high peak when lots of people are sick at the same time, and that would basically overwhelm the NHS or any uh, healthcare system. And what flattening the curve is about is just to do everything it takes to reduce the number of infections at uh, any given time. And that's what the the governments around the world are doing. Uh, They're trying to get people to mix and mingle less by, uh, you know, working from home, not traveling, moving around, uh, going to bars, restaurants, and so on. All these measures collectively uh, will mean uh, less transmission of the virus uh, and hopefully a flatter curve. Now, are there any criticisms of this approach? Now, what critics are worried about is that 
In some countries, all of this is uh, voluntary. So here in Britain, for example, people have been asked to stay at home or work from home if they can. There are models suggesting that the current measures may be enough. In other countries, by contrast, the measures are very heavy-handed. In France and Italy, for example, people are asked to you know, carry around a self-certified form uh, saying you know, what are their reasons for um, traveling around town, which uh, obviously is quite a hardship for many people. And the thing is that nobody really knows uh, what package of measures uh, will be perfect and just about enough to flatten the curve. Next, one idea put forward to respond to the pandemic is to rely on herd immunity. What does that mean and can it work? This is when people in a population have a form of protection from infectious diseases simply through the fact that they've been exposed to it. When a virus first arrives in a population, nobody has immunity at all. As people get exposed to it, they develop immunity. And what this herd immunity means is that it's very difficult for the virus to jump from person to person. So let me explain. We all understand, for example, how measles works. All right. It requires about 90% of the people in this country to get a measles vaccine to provide the herd immunity. That means that if there is a case of measles, that it won't spread throughout the population because you know some people can't have the vaccine. Some, either they're too young or they don't develop much immunity. And so we rely on herd immunity all the time with the sort of existing uh, diseases that we manage. Now, we have this completely new virus and there is no herd immunity and nor is herd immunity developing if we're all sitting at home uh, locked up in our rooms and houses. But so the question really is, how do we develop this herd immunity? Now, one way of doing that would be a vaccine. We're still away from a vaccine. Another way is if you still move around and you mix with people. The problem that gives you is that once you start mixing with people, you get an epidemic and that causes all sorts of horrible things that we're trying to avoid. So do you think that's a viable way to staunch the disease? only if you have a treatment. So if we had a treatment that stopped people dying of COVID-19, herd immunity would be a fantastic strategy, right? You'd just let people catch it and then you'd treat them when they get it and then they wouldn't die. And then everyone would essentially be vaccinated for free. But we don't have that treatment and so, and people are dying and that's why, you know, herd immunity isn't exactly a strategy that we can make use of at the moment if we want to minimise deaths. Thank you, Natasha. A listener named Jack has asked whether COVID-19 can be transmitted via the post or other delivery items. He also asks, how long will the virus remain transmissible on the surfaces of steel, aluminum, plastics and cardboard or paper? Do we have an answer to that? A recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine tried to sort of tackle some of this. And I don't want to sort of be repeating what um, others have said. We actually don't know huge amounts about this virus right now, so take some of this with a pinch of salt. But they found that the COVID-19 virus would survive longest on plastic and stainless steel, so hard surfaces. And it stayed there for around three days before um, it disappeared or was washed away. And the softer surfaces for less time than that. Now, there's been no definitive proof that you know, you can catch this disease 
from such surfaces. You know, if you uh, the, the idea that one of the we were told, of course, to wash our hands quite often, and that's partly because if you have any of these viruses on your hands, or if you touch something with the virus on it, and then touch your face or any other sort of mucous membrane, then um, you can transfer the virus into you. That's a risk, but there's been no definitive proof that um, from a surface that you just encounter that there's going to be a problem. Now, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine study sort of said those things, and it went into other things like, for example, uh, how how transmissible it might be in the air. So the idea is that actually most transmission happens through droplets. So if a person who's infected coughs and releases lots of um, droplets of saliva, these contain viruses, that's a way for transmission. But these things don't travel very far at all. And so if you're within a couple of metres of someone, you're at risk, but beyond that, you're not. So there's no need to be concerned about that. However, um, if these things land on surfaces, then yes, they can stay there for a little time and there can be some transmission. But as I said already, there's been no definitive proof of that. Uh, all of this is, by the way, is just lab tests and so on. What we need is epidemiology. So what you need to do is actually look for a long period of time with the behaviour of the virus to actually determine the answer to our listeners' question, which is that whether these things can be transmitted that way. I think that the CDC in America and others have said that this is not transmission through surfaces and other things is not something that um, they're overly concerned about, but that we should still be cautious. We should wash our hands and we should uh, continue to um, remain distant from people, etc. Those are the ways that we're going to stop the spread of this, uh, this virus. Now, Alec has just told us about how we could possibly catch it. The next question comes from a listener named Ken. I promise it's not me. And he wants to know if a person can get sick more than once from COVID-19. Natasha, why don't you take this one? The short answer is we don't really know. Um, there have been uh, some cases where people have tested positive and then they've tested negative and they seem to have recovered and then they've tested positive again. But unfortunately, the test that we're using is not sufficiently reliable to be sure that when you get a negative test, you really are not shedding any virus. So the short answer is we just don't know. Okay, so this is a pretty essential question. When do you think we might find out? So having said all that, we're operating under the assumption that you probably can't get reinfected for the simple reason that you would expect a virus like this to generate some form of immunity because that's what infectious diseases like this generally do. Of course, we don't know for sure, but it seems to be a reasonable operating assumption. If people were getting reinfected, the epidemic curve that you see in places like China, where it's gone down again, wouldn't look the way that it does, right? Because you'd get more cases and you'd still have numbers uh, rising. So it's a reasonable assumption that you can't uh, get it a second time. Does that mean that nobody can get a second case of COVID-19? Well, that's a much harder question for science to answer. So another listener has asked us, what explains the difference of COVID-19 death rates in neighboring European countries? For example, Germany's rate is below 1%, while Spain's is over 4%. A listener named Rob asks, is it an issue of health system readiness or patchy reporting? Slavea, you've been covering this for the paper. What's your estimation? The short answer is basically that we really don't know what it is in, in different countries. What we do know is uh, from various models that try to estimate how many infections there are out there. And the fatality rate uh, we know is much higher among people who are older. So eventually we'll see 
more deaths in, in countries with older populations, such as those in Western Europe. The quality of care will, of course, matter hugely. But at this point, just comparing rates between countries is very speculative because we simply don't know what the true rate is. A listener named Masood has asked us to summarize the global efforts to develop a COVID-19 vaccine and the challenges for mass production. For example, there are 80 clinical trials going on or pending in China right now. Natasha. When Chinese researchers released the sequence of the virus in January this year, it triggered a, a global race, if you like, to develop vaccines. There are almost too many vaccines in development to really summarise, but lots of groups are trying in lots of parts of the world. What you must remember is, is when you're developing a new vaccine, first of all, you're going to uh, need to check that it's safe. You know, you'll do animal trials and animal trials will be going on as we speak for various vaccines around the world. Then you'll put it into very carefully a few test subjects who are willing to have this vaccine tested on them. And then you'll start to do studies where you look to see if the vaccine is safe. And you might, you know, try that uh, experiment in healthcare workers, for example, for people who are exposed to a lot of the virus. You're going to see over the next uh, month, you'll see lots more phase one trials started. These are trials where you're testing for uh, safety. And then over the following two or three months, you'll start to even see perhaps some efficacy studies. And so my view is that this could become important towards the second half of the year for countries that have active outbreaks. There may be uh, some vaccines available. So let me put it back to all three of you. What can we do? One of our listeners has written, what over-the-counter medications can people use to combat the virus if they get it? For example, a French health official said that ibuprofen and other anti-inflammatory drugs actually made COVID-19 worse. So what can we use in our medicine cabinet? So I'm not a doctor, but I would caution against using anything that you think is going to get rid of the virus. I mean, it's very hard to get rid of viral infections full stop from you. You just need to wait for your immune system to do the work. What you might be able to do is manage your symptoms. So paracetamol is probably the most sensible thing you can do if you want to just not have such a terrible time of it. If you have very bad conditions, you need you're going to need um, hospital help. There's no easy over-the-counter medication, I think, that uh, is going to sort of actually solve the virus. And ibuprofen specifically? This is prefaced with the statement that I, I'm not a medical doctor, nor am I, uh, you know, a, a public health expert. Um, but there are some general things that um, are worth mentioning about ibuprofen. One of them is that it is an anti-inflammatory medication, and you are relying on your immune system to fight off this disease. And so there are concerns that suggest that anti-inflammatory drugs are not necessarily the best thing to be taking when you're fighting off a respiratory disease like this. So yes, there are uh, real concerns about ibuprofen. What that means is is difficult to say. Luckily, you know, people have a choice of taking a different drug. Um, you know, you can take paracetamol instead. Um, there's also there's also been some discussion about you know whether ibuprofen is having an impact on 
the receptors that the virus used to gain hold in the lungs. This is all pretty speculative at the moment. So in conclusion, there are two things about ibuprofen that might make you think twice about taking it for a a disease like COVID-19. Our final question comes from a listener named Fraser, and he wants to know, what should I buy if I'm rich? Who's got an answer? Oh, I've got an answer to this one. Isn't the uh, official answer to this toilet roll? (laughs) Are we all sticking with that? Natasha has a great answer. Uh, I was going to suggest buying an island (laughs) and uh, spend some time on it. The other discussion that's being had is uh, whether they should buy ventilators. Um, My answer to this is a rather blunt no. The point of these enormous restrictions that we are undertaking as a society is to reduce the mortality rate. If wealthy people go out and buy ventilators and masks, they're going to put people, you know, at harm because these things are in short supply at the moment. In fact, they could, you know, mean that people die. And so I would ask wealthy people to try their very hardest to be socially minded and not to buy ventilators and N95 masks. And if they have them, to ask them politely to go and donate them to the local hospital where they could save the life of someone in need. Natasha, Slavea, thank you. And for you listeners, you can find out more answers to more questions in The Economist coverage. Please subscribe at economist.com slash radiooffer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Alec, stay with us because we'll be right back to talk with you about the testing for COVID-19. Welcome back to Babbage on Economist Radio. In the fight against COVID-19, the World Health Organization has stressed one key approach laid out by its Director General, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, in a conference on March 16th. You cannot fight a fire blindfolded And we cannot stop this pandemic if we don't know who is infected. We have a simple message for all countries. Test, test, test. Alec Jaws, our science correspondent, and you heard from him earlier before the break. He's writing about how testing kits for the virus work. Hello, Alec. Hi, Ken. Alec, let's start with some basics. How can scientists identify viral infections? So there are two uh, broad ways of doing it. One is genetic. So you identify the genome sequence of your virus uh, and then look for bits of it that are unique to that virus compared to similar ones. And then you can create a test that essentially identifies strands of um, viral DNA in a sample. And then the other way is serological, which is basically blood tests. So what you do is you look in blood from a patient and look for antibodies that have been created to that virus, which tells you that that patient has had an infection in the past or maybe even has one now. And so how does a genetic test for the new coronavirus work? So this is the one that's being used right now all over the world. So tens of thousands of tests have been carried out. And it starts with a throat swab. So you'll have seen pictures of people who um, have had the backs of their throats swabbed. And what it's doing is scraping off a few cells because the site of the infection in COVID-19 is deep in the lungs. But um, what you get at the top of the lungs and um, in the throat is some cells that are also 
infected. And the idea is that you scrape off some cells and then you put it into a laboratory which can then extract from that all of the DNA and RNA that's inside and identify if any of the viral RNA is in it. The particular virus um, is made of RNA, which is a sort of single-stranded version of DNA. And uh, you, I try and identify that in the um, cells that you've scraped off. And how accurate is the genetic testing? Well, the genetic test is very accurate. If the virus is there in your sample, it will find it. Because what the test does is it amplifies any strands of viral RNA um, in the sample. So even if there's just a very tiny amount, um, it'll find it. There are limitations, of course. Uh, You have to do the sampling properly, taking a swab from somebody who may be sick and doesn't want you to stick a piece of plastic down their throat. Uh, is not easy, and it's uh, liable to a contamination for whoever's uh, taking it. So uh, you have to get really back into this throat. And one virologist told me that um, you know when you've taken a good swab when uh, the person you're taking it from wants to gag or cough at you. So this is not not the safest way of doing things. So you've got to do that properly. And also, at the beginning and end of an infection, um, there might not be enough virus in the throat so you might not be able to actually get any in your sample so you know you might be infected but you can't actually test it but that's very rare but genetic testing is otherwise very very good and how long does the process take so genetic testing if you had everything lined up and you know you took your swab and put it straight into a machine that can do all the analysis and everything probably takes between five to seven hours but of course generally speaking the swab has to be taken to a laboratory and then the whole thing's done in batches and so typically you're seeing 24 to 48 hours between a swab being taken and a result coming along is there a way to do the test sooner maybe while the person is there in front of you yeah, so the genetic testing that I've discussed is, you know, was it was created um, just after the genetic sequence of the virus was published in January. So the World Health Organization set out some protocols and many public health agencies around the world built their own tests. But essentially, they, they require central laboratories. It's quite cumbersome. So what needs to happen now and what is happening now are companies are coming along and sort of commercializing the test a little bit by slotting them into platforms that already exist. So you can get platforms and machines already that can do a whole load of viral tests. What you just need is the particular cartridge for that test. And so they're developing those. What you can do with those machines is that you might be able to have them. They they could be the size of a a desktop printer, for example, and they sit in clinics or um, in maybe even in doctor's surgeries, and you could plug in uh, someone's sample. It would do all the analysis in that machine and give you a result maybe in a couple of hours. So that would be very useful for community spread and monitoring out the community. And what's the time frame for having those tests ready? Well, so those uh, tests, the companies have already created the technology to do it. They've already got the platform. They've created the cartridges. They just need approval from health authorities to actually do it. Some of them are in the process of getting emergency authorities. It might take a few weeks, but generally these things take many, many months. Things might get speeded up because of the severity of the outbreak. So, you know, we're talking months at the most, I think, in this case. Now, are there some places that have a shortage of tests, for example, America or Britain? America has a specific problem in that um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the American Public Health Agency, decided to create its own version of the WHO test. And the first version didn't work properly. Um, And so it had a bit of a lag in terms of fixing that and then sending out the proper tests. 
So there's a little bit of a shortage, but I don't think it's something that's going to be a problem for them if they want to ramp up production, because companies can just uh, do that quite quickly. The UK has decided not to test everybody. They want to test people with symptoms and they want to test people in hospitals, but not everybody. And I spoke to um, a diagnostics expert at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine who told me that actually she thinks that that's actually quite a good strategy to not continue with the testing, because if you've got a limited amount of resources and you're priorities to make sure that whoever gets the infection doesn't die from it or that the resources are spent on people who can be helped in hospitals then at this stage you don't need to do lots and lots more tests um, because you know those people who are not so severe will stay at home anyway Um, so there are tests available it's just a case of allocating resources. Alec, it seems to me that we're still flying blind into this pandemic because we're not doing random sampling so that we can pick up new things and learn new patterns of the spread of the disease simply by looking at people who have symptoms as well as those who don't show symptoms. You're right. Um, I think actually that um, right now we're still in crisis mode and, you know, resources are limited and time is limited and people have multiple things to do. You know, if you're a doctor, you don't have time to do research. You've got to just help people um, sort of get over the infection. Once we have the blood tests, that will become easier because those are very quick easy to do, they're cheap, they can be done on the large scale. You know, whenever that arrives in the next few weeks, um, you can start to do random sampling much more easily and less invasively than having to stick a piece of plastic down someone's throat. And so I think that you're right, that's the only way we're going to find out what this denominator is, how many people are actually infected, and then you can really tell how serious in terms of death mortality rate it is, you know, who gets um, symptoms, how many people don't get symptoms, what does it look like when somebody doesn't have symptoms, um, you know, passes it on to other people, how many people, how infectious are they? There is so much we don't know, and you're absolutely right, we need to do the random sampling, and we need more of these sorts of tests easily available to um, create that sort of data set. Alec, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. Thank you to everyone who got involved and sent us your questions. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and from my home in West London, where I'm social distancing, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.